0: the way- Welcome to episode 1579 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: Doing okay. How are you?
0: I am overly warm.
1: <laughs> Why is that?
0: Because it's hot in Seattle for uh-huh. Seattle. It was 96 yesterday. Oof. Wow. So I feel like that's, that's legitimately warm.
1: Yeah, it is quite temperate where I am in New York. It's sixty-eight oh. degrees right now.
0: Oh goodness! Yeah. yeah, we had we had lovely weather here for a while, and then it was hot, and now it'll go away and it'll be fine. But I am warm, you know. When you're when you're like warm, and so you're quick to agitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel a little like that. But it's nice to talk to you. So I think I'll I'll pull out of it.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll try <laughs> not to irritate you. Try to stay on your good side here.
0: Well, given the exercise we're going to embark on, I'm nervous that I will find you quite vexing.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. Yeah, we are going to do a little draft or draft lit later in this episode. Just a few things before we get to that. One, the Babbitt mystery of 2020 has taken another turn. I'm really not sure what to make of this whole thing. So. I wrote a week ago about the fact that we seemed to have an unusually low BABIP early in the season, and even over a fairly small sample, it was still unusually low. I looked at all of the earlier season starting samples of equivalent length, and it was the lowest of any sample of that length going back to the early 1990s. It was very strange because typically we don't see a lot of fluctuation in BABIP, and Sam and I talked about some explanations for why that might be the case. And then I expanded on it in my writing. And naturally, in the week since that article was published, the BABIP is 3.08. (laughs) Or at least it was before Monday's game. So it looks like it's uh, a little low right now as we record on Monday evening. But seems like BABIP has not only regressed to the mean, but maybe been a little higher than usual. So obviously when we talked about it and I wrote about it, I allowed for the possibility that it was just some sort of fluke or maybe that hitters were just off their game and that they would get back on their game and that things would start to look more normal. But that is kind of a hazard whenever you write or talk about something that is an extreme. It's always likely to bounce back toward the norm. And yep that seems to have happened immediately. So whatever was happening has not been happening since we talked about that.
0: Yeah, you you wrote about it. Dan Zimborski is going to be writing about it later this week and I think his initial Uh reaction when he saw your piece was oh no and then (laughs) a couple days passed and he's like wait what (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. so yeah it is it is quite the speed with which it shifted I guess is unsurprising given how compressed everything is this year but Mm -hmm. for it to fluctuate so dramatically was yeah it was quite something
1: (laughs) yeah yeah there were a few articles about it I, I think you know Saris wrote something about it not specifically about the Babbitt but more just about the low offense which was largely related to the Babip, and when I wrote about it, I got an email from Joe Sheehan saying, "Can't you just write about video games all the time?" Because he had been <laughs> planning to write about Babip, yep. so it was on people's minds, and people were tweeting about it. And then suddenly, it it seems to have just mysteriously disappeared. So I guess that's good if you like hits and singles. We've actually seen some of them lately. And so the theories about well, maybe it's teams shifting more, maybe it's fielders performing better without fans in the stands. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly still low on the season, so maybe there's still something going on there. Maybe this has been a week that has been fluky in the other direction, and it'll just go back to being low again. Who knows at this point? But I wanted to just update everyone that that effect has not persisted since that conversation.
0: Yeah. Weird.
1: Yep. So we also have big Tigers news, right? The the Tigers did the thing that we were all talking about whether they should do, which is calling up a bunch of top prospects. And unfortunately for them, they've done it at a point where they seem to have fallen off a cliff all of a sudden, too. So as we speak, they are attempting to avert a six-game losing streak, but it's not looking great at the moment. So I believe their record has fallen below 500. Is that? Right. Yep. So, yeah. So the the hot start with them has not quite persisted over that week either. So all the things that we were talking about happening have the opposite of those things have happened. But... They have reinforcements, so they called up Casey Mize, they called up Tarek Skubel, they called up Isaac Paredes, so three of their top prospects, not Matt Manning, but two of the trio of pitchers that everyone was clamoring to see now on the Major League roster, so that's exciting at least.
0: Yeah, they're 9-10 and 10 now. They're down to the White Sox mm-hmm. in their effort today, but look you know that my perspective on prospects is that when you think that they are ready to play baseball at the major league level, that you should let them do that because it's nice for them and it's fun for your fans. And the whole thing is about, you know, just like winning. That's what Mm -hmm. it's about. It's about winning. And so I like it on those terms, just on its own. And I also like the idea that someone that a team that is um, not really planning to have contended this year finds themselves with enough of enough margin that they could just say "Eh, Mm -hmm. let's see what they can do let's see what the let's see what these uh young pitchers can can really get up to and despite their good start they do need some help i mean matt boyd has not pitched particularly well i don't believe so it's just very exciting and i think that in a year where things are generally dire in non-baseball terms and were assumed to be dire for the tigers in baseball terms going into the season to afford your fans something to be excited about is good and to give prospects who are ready the opportunity to hone their skills at the major league level when they're ready to do so is also good so i say uh, good job tigers
1: Yeah, and if the wind starts to come out of the sails a little bit, then maybe calling on the cavalry helps a little, whether it's with morale or just because those pitchers and players are pretty talented. So if uh, your, your prospects start to flag a little, then... Well, call up your prospects. So different meaning of prospects. And Manning might be next. There was a comment, I think, by Alvila who said that he needs a little more time. He's working on control and command, mechanical tweaks, et cetera. But he might be up there sometime soon. So At the very least, even if the Tigers' playoff hopes fall apart a little bit, you get the consolation of knowing that they went for it to some degree. They tried it. They pulled out all the stops. And also you get to see the next generation of Tigers, which is always nice. So even if it doesn't really come together this year, you get a sneak peek of what it will look like hopefully when it does come together. So that's pretty fun regardless.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, Mize has been the the headliner for a long time, and that makes good sense, given sort of his pedigree, but I think that Skubal will impress people. I know that when Eric wrote about him for the Tigers list, and I, I mean, before that for the Top 100, that he received feedback from evaluators that people should perhaps think about him as being right up in the same tier as Mize and Manning, so... I think that he will be a fun. He'll be a fun thing, and he's kind of a fun story. You know, he he came out of Seattle University, which has had big leaguers, but is not like a powerhouse yeah. <laughs> from a college perspective. So uh, that will be that'll be a fun thing too. Mm-hmm.
1: In other prospect promotion news that did not go so well, I wanted to talk just for a minute about Roel Ramirez. <laughs> who Should had a we memorable oh, major God. debut? In not the way that he would have wanted Sam and I spoke recently About the disastrous start To a start that Derek Holland had where He gave up four home runs in the first inning Not all consecutively Three of them were consecutive Well, Cardinals rookie Roel Ramirez gave up four home runs And they were consecutive Which is a first There have been nine major league debuts That involved a pitcher giving up Four home runs But this was the first First time that a pitcher had given up four home runs consecutively in his debut. He came in on Sunday in the bottom of the fifth, and the White Sox were ahead one nothing. So he comes in in relief of Dakota Hudson, strikes out Luis Robert. So far so good. And then it went single single. Now I watched both of those singles and they were both pretty weakly hit ground balls. One was sort of through the shift or in the area where the shift wasn't. Another was a hit and run. And if the second baseman had been playing straight up, he might have had it. So that was just little bleeders that weren't really his fault. Then one of those runners was caught stealing, which helps him out a little. Okay, suddenly he just has one out to go to get through this debut inning. Then he gives up a walk, he throws a wild pitch, and then home run to Johan Makata, home run to Yasmani Grandal, home run to Jose Abreu, and home run to Aloy Jimenez. Back to back to back to back all pretty hard hit. Yeah. <laughs> they did not really get cheated. And then Seth Elledge comes in to replace Roel Ramirez and Seth Elledge also making his major league debut in this game. And if I were Roel Ramirez, I I don't know that I would wish ill on Seth Elledge at that point, but I kind of would want him to at least struggle a little bit just to show like, hey, it's hard to make your major league debut. So that almost takes the pressure off of me a little bit. Instead, Elledge comes in, gets a strikeout to get out of the inning, then gets through another hitless inning, then yet another hitless inning in which he struck out all three batters he faced. So he got through two and a third with no damage done at all in his major league debut. And if I were Miras, I would just be thinking, come on, man, like just show that this is difficult. Like make me look a little bit better in retrospect. But no, that didn't happen.
0: Ben, do you follow the Twitter account MLB Home Run?
1: I do not. Is that the one that shows the the Statcast graphic for every home run?
0: It does not. It just it's just a counter of okay. of home runs. So it'll give you the player and the team and how many they've hit total, and then a brief description of the home run that they hit, like solo uh-huh. or two run, and if they've hit multiple in that day. So and you know it's pretty quick, but there can be a bit of a lag, and mm-hmm. I. I thought that, like, someone had gone to the bathroom and then had come back and was like, oh, I got to catch up on the home runs in this White Sox game. That was not accurate, Ben. I felt very bad for him. And I know we have to talk about it. And I think it's fine for us to do so. And we aren't being mean about the way we're talking about it. But... We should never bring it up again.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean if, we didn't have to. <laughs> like, no, but like it's, not. <laughs>
0: it's no it's noteworthy. It's it an, is. it's unusual. I mean, I guess the good news is that it is unusual <laughs>
1: right.
0: to to have one's debut go this way.
1: Yes. Unprecedented even.
0: Right. But oh 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 boy. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. You, it's yeah. just that feeling, that tug of like, ooh.
1: Yeah. One would hope that he will go on to have a long, successful major league career, and I don't know if he'll get to the point where he will look back and laugh at this exactly. It yeah. might just be so traumatic that you just never get to the point where you laugh about it, but you know, he's twenty five years old, he is a prospect. I think he was twenty two on Eric's preseason cardinals list, and there are gonna be a bunch of cardinals making their major league debut, and I guess if you have to do it, maybe do it in this season when no one's really gonna remember Roel Ramirez's Major League right. debut if you're thinking about what do I recall from the 2020 Cardinal season? It'll probably be the fact that there almost wasn't a 2020 Cardinal season, that they were off forever and then they played doubleheaders every day for weeks. So that might kind of overshadow it. So there's a lot going on. Maybe that distracts from a a poor debut and it doesn't get worse than that. So I guess if he has a... a good mindset about all of this, he might just say, well, it's all uphill from here. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's hope that he has that perspective, but probably pretty tough to have that type of perspective when you finally get there. Like you want to just go to bed that night feeling like I did it. My dream yep. came true. I accomplished my my lifelong mission. And maybe there's some small part of him that can think that, but it's probably a very small part <laughs> that you could kind of put this into perspective and say well I had a really terrible day but hey I made it and so few people ever get to make it and I set my sights on making the majors and I did it I didn't do it the way I wanted to do it but I did it I have a baseball reference page now with a really unsightly era but at least I have one with a a major league tab so I hope that some part of him took solace in that but that would show a lot of maturity I think to take the long view after you get tattooed like that
0: yeah, it would not be. We would not think any less of him if he needed a day. <laughs> you know, yeah. if he like needed a day with like his favorite food and yeah. uh, a nice, a nice call from from someone he cares about who cares yes. about him to to say the right thing that people who care about you can say to make you feel better after the day has passed and you're yes you're looking to have the sting taken out right. You've sat with the sting now. You're like, all right, well, let's move on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he'll get another. He'll get another shot.
1: Yeah. Better days ahead. Can't be anything but better days ahead, (laughs) I would think. (laughs) Good Lord. I have a step blast for you before we get to our topic today, and this is related to the Tigers topic that we were just talking about. So we got an email from Patreon supporter Chris Hennell, who said, Cleveland just won against Detroit today, and on the Twins broadcast, Dick Bremer said it was their 20th consecutive victory against them. That was on Sunday, and Chris continues, so the big question What's the longest win streak one team has against another? And since I'm a Twins fan and a glutton for punishment, what's the longest team versus team win streak counting only postseason games? Oh boy. So you can sit and stew on that for a moment and I will play yet another stat blast song cover that came in just this week from Robert Au of Baseball Prospectus, you will perhaps recognize it. It is sort of a mashup of the Stat Blast song and another song that you may remember well, but in a minor key. Okay, so after Chris sent in this question and I outsourced it to official Plus source, one of many, Adam Ott, our faithful listener who is very skilled with his RetroSheet database. Adam actually clued me into the fact that Andrew Simon of MLB.com did an article on this very topic and got very similar results to Andrew's, so I'll link to that too. You can check it out there, but I will also put Adam's spreadsheet online, and he looked up the postseason streaks in addition to the regular season streaks. So. As Chris noted, Cleveland and Detroit are now up to 20 consecutive games with Cleveland beating Detroit. And in fact, they could get up to 23 soon because these two teams play each other again in the coming weekend. So oh if, <laughs> if Cleveland were to sweep Detroit again, they could get to 23 and that would tie the all-time record. So if we keep it to modern era, if we keep it to – 1901 forward because Adam was able to go all the way back to 1870, I think, or 1871, and he sent the the streaks from more recent years. But if you do go back to 1883 to 1884, the Providence Grays had a 27-game streak against the Detroit Wolverines. So, Now you know that the Detroit Wolverines were a team and that they could not beat the Providence Grays for 27 consecutive games. So maybe it's just a a Detroit team thing. But if we stick with more modern times, the record is 23, and that is the Orioles over the Kansas City Royals, 1969 to 1970. The Royals just could not beat the Orioles. Then you have to go back to 1903. From 1903 to 1904, the Red Sox beat up the Senators 22 times in a row. And 1927, the 27 Yankees beat up the Browns 21 times in a row. Those are the only teams ahead of the current streak of 20 for Cleveland and Detroit. Now, if you look at the... Top names on this list It's almost all Other than the one at the top The 1969-70 to streak It's almost all early baseball It's all like pre-war teams Which sort of makes sense Because there were a lot of teams That just were not trying in those days And you had a lot of really terrible teams That were terrible almost every year For very long stretches And just were not really competing Even more so than today's tanking teams And so you had teams like the Yankees and teams like the Browns, and there was often quite a, a mismatch there. So you see a lot of these streaks were from those early years. And so the other teams with 20, the Pirates over the Reds 20 straight times in 1937 and 1938, and the Cardinals over the Phillies 20 times from 1927 to 1928. Then you have the 1938 Yankees over the Athletics 19 times. And then the 1909 Cubs over the Boston Braves, 19 straight times. So again, it's all long time ago streaks. And really the only more recent one here, you have the active streak. This one is actually still active The Yankees over the Orioles, they have an active 18-game streak, and that is a four-way tie, it looks like, but again, with teams from 1940, 1930, 1917, 1908. So the only really other recent one here is the Brewers over the Pirates, 17 straight times in 2008 and 2009. Anyway... That's more streaks than you probably wanted to know.
0: So I don't tend to subscribe to like supernatural causes for things, Ben. That's not my... (laughs) My default. I know that's probably not surprising. I think that if it got to 20, I might say that it means something more than just your team being both not as good and likely somewhat unlucky, right? Because uh-huh. like in 20 games, even a bad team is going to beat a better team, you would you'd think. think. You'd it's, think at least one time.
1: Certainly against the odds that right. they wouldn't. yes. Right,
0: you'd think at least one time. So I think if it got to double digits, mm-hmm. I'd start to think... My first instinct would be that someone was throwing the games and then and then after 15 i'd start to assume that that maybe i had been cursed <laughs> like i yeah. had been unkind to Another person and a witch wanted to teach me a lesson about humility or something like that. So I wouldn't really because that would be very silly of me. But I do wonder for a couple of those guys probably have to be somewhat superstitious. And I wonder if they think that something's afoot because it just seems seems impossible.
1: (laughs) Yeah. At a certain point, you would wonder whether a team starts to be psyched out or whether there's some sort of mental block there. But... I don't know. I guess if you take enough teams and enough seasons and all those possible trials for this to happen and good teams versus terrible teams, it would happen some number of times. But yes, if you were on the receiving end of that, it would probably be hard to maintain that perspective. I was going to say that even some of the terrible Mariners teams that you have watched have not been on the receiving end of this type of dominance but there was a, a 15 game streak the astros over the mariners that was just snapped this season yeah, actually so true. yeah but that's uh as long as it's gotten and even the really good mariners teams have not had a, a longer streak in the other direction
0: see the funny thing is i don't really remember the mariners losing that much or i should rather i rather i should say I'm surprised it didn't last longer in an indifferent different way on my part because I That's could I could definitely see myself looking up and being like wait what <laughs> Did I have a lot of time on it?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you could just forget that it happened because it's over the course of a couple seasons, maybe, right. and it's not like you're playing all of the games consecutively. So, right. Yeah,
0: I think that that helps you to feel as if it is is a bit different. If you lost 15 in a row, well, first you'd be like, "Why am I playing all of my games against my division <laughs> opponent right in a row?" That seems that seems silly. But yeah, when they're spaced over a season or two, then you're like, oh. Okay, that's that's fine. It is easier to forget than like Chris Davis's extended rung of being bad mm-hmm. because you presumably have other wins sprinkled in there. Yeah. But I think for diehard fans you probably sit there and you're like, you kinda dread those games, I would imagine. You sit there at home and you're like, yeah, <laughs> fuck. Do this again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you were a Tigers fan last year, you probably <laughs> had that feeling Gosh, yeah. about every game. But <laughs> yeah,
0: I wonder. We should we should find a representative Tigers fan and ask which kind of disappointment they noticed more did this disappointment stand out from the rest of the disappointments or did all the losses sort of blend together at a certain point
1: yeah and i guess i I don't know if it's more likely to happen against a division rival but you would maybe notice it more against a division rival because you're playing more games against that team and so it would happen over the course of a season or two as opposed to stretching over several years where you're playing a team sporadically and you might not even notice but yeah it's kind of like in May when I talked to Mike Jorgensen about being hitless against Doc Ellis and having the most at-bats or most played appearances against any one pitcher without getting a hit in history, and he wasn't even aware of it or hadn't been aware of it before I think his son told him, and it was just because— He knew that he'd had kind of a tough time with Ellis and that he didn't necessarily look forward to facing him, but he just didn't even remember that he had never gotten a hit against him because it was over a stretch of several years and you face a lot of guys and maybe you forget what you did or didn't do. So I could see how that might apply on a team level too.
0: I think you'd think you're cursed.
1: (laughs) Maybe. And because Chris asked about the postseason streaks of team against team ineptitude, the Yankees Twins streak is actually the longest. So oh. <laughs> 13 consecutive winless games for the Twins against the Yankees from October 6th, 2004 to October 7th, 2019. And that's a 15 year stretch. But, obviously, Twins fans are well aware of that, as are Yankees fans, because when you get knocked out of the playoffs repeatedly by the same team, when they are just this impenetrable barrier that you cannot get over as you try to advance in the playoffs, that has a way of sticking with you. And the top of this list is mostly recent teams, as you would expect, because there are just more teams in the playoffs these days and more playoff games, so it's easier to rack up one of these longer streaks but that twins yankees streak topped the 11 game streak the red sox beat the angels 11 straight times so that one was from 1986 to 2008 so you know maybe that's not quite as noticeable then you had the yankees over the rangers 10 straight times from 96 through 2010 and the A's over the Red Sox 10 straight times from 88 through 2003, those are the only ones in double digits. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The pro-
0: the, I think the problem is that you get to that point, and it's one thing to lose and feel embarrassed like that privately, but once the stretch gets long enough that like people at MLB.com are writing articles about it now... Mm-hmm. Other people start to become participants in your embarrassment. Yes. And and that's much worse. Like, you know, we've all done doofy stuff in the privacy of our own homes and then been like, oh, I'm so glad no one was around to see that. Yep. And then once you've lost 20 in a row, and then the postseason's even worse because everybody's watching those games. Yeah. That's yeah. not a nice thing to point out to twins fans. You already know <laughs> how it feels.
1: Yes. Yeah, we did a podcast <laughs> about that last year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's gotta be like a, a two times or, or three times. Times postseason multiplier for this kind of thing oh, just yeah. in terms of how much it bothers you like it must bother you when it's a division opponent and so in the standings if you're counting the division race that counts double but in the playoffs it, it counts even more because that team keeps sending you home time after time so that is incredibly frustrating oh boy all right let's do our little draft or yeah. topic or whatever we're calling it so I thought it might be fun to just shout out some of the small sample seasons that we have enjoyed, especially thus far, because we're now more than a third of the way through the season, and that's even assuming that they play all of the games, so we're more than a third of the way through the scheduled season, so we should appreciate what we are seeing while we're seeing it, so... I know that I have been looking at the leaderboards and and having my attention drawn to certain seasons more than others, and some guys I've been checking on day to day because I have some interest in seeing what they do, and I figured this would be a good time to just sort of pick some seasons that we've enjoyed for whatever reason. Guys who've been really good could be guys who've been really bad. I don't know who you're going to draft. Could be guys who've just done something surprising for whatever reason. So I guess you can start if you have a name ready, and maybe we'll choose uh, six or seven, or we'll see how it goes.
0: Sure. Okay, so my first pick is going to be Eric Cosmer's launch angle. Yes. Which has shifted quite dramatically. I think my notes are right here. So it's now sitting at 17.5 degrees yeah. and it's been 2 degrees and -1.5 <laughs> degrees in the uh-huh. past 2 years. And you know, this is like this is a very small This is a very small sample, even among the small samples that we are looking at. This is a quite small one. So going into today, Hosmer had only had 42 plate appearances, but I watched I watched a little, you know, I've watched a fair amount of padres and I've noticed this about Hosmer. And his swing doesn't look that different to me, but I think that he is taking a slightly different approach based on his his heat maps and it would seem to indicate that he's attacking different pitches than he was. And it's again, it's such a small sample, and I I think that we have a tendency to over enlist hitters into the fly ball revolution without yeah. really knowing, you know, if that's actually what's at work, if it's an intentional mechanical change, there is an intentional approach change that's taking place. I think Hosmer's track record with sabermetric concepts and sort of that sort of feedback is checkered. Should yes. I say. Yes. So I hope that we see some reporting around this because I'd like to hear from him about what it is he's doing and what he thinks he's doing and what kind of led to whatever it is that he's doing or he might just say oh, I'm just going up there and swinging which would be mm-hmm. interesting too <laughs> yeah it would be a different kind of interesting but it would be interesting also so I think that that Padres team is quite fun and in all likelihood if they advance to the postseason it's going to be because the young guys did really well but one thing that would certainly help them is if Eric Cosmer was not only not a liability but was an actual asset to their lineup and mm-hmm. in those 42 played appearances he has a 161 WRC plus so yeah that's that's new
1: <laughs> yeah it, it really is yeah his uh his ground ball rate if we want to just use old-fashioned yep. batted ball stats down from 56 percent which is extremely high although not his highest right to 31.4 percent that would be a, a very large drop, and he's been the poster boy for this for years now. Just when you look at hitters and try to say, "Oh, this guy, he's a, a candidate for a swing change or for the fly ball revolution," and it's not always that simple, of course. But he's been a, an obvious candidate just because he hits the ball hard, but yep. he hits it really down in the ground and really always down has, in the yeah, just one of the lowest launch angles, one of the highest ground ball rates and you just want to be like Eric just elevate you you do a lot of things well you hit the ball hard that's half the battle or maybe more (laughs) just don't hit it down as much as you do and I think there have been times when he sounded somewhat receptive to that, and other times he sounded dismissive of that. But there was an article this spring by Andy McCullough at The Athletic where he talked about Hosmer's attempt to reinvent himself or revive himself and didn't get into that many specifics, but as Andy wrote it, Padres bench coach Bobby Dickerson had a heart-to-heart conversation with him in spring training and was just like, what kind of hitter do you want to be? You know, you're 30 now. Do you want to decline or do you want to really take hold of your career here? And Sounds like for whatever reason That resonated with Hosmer And I don't know exactly what Specific changes he's made if any As you said maybe it's more about pitch selection But yeah I mean he's coming Off two seasons where he was A below average hitter at First base and I know the defensive stats are always more down on him than the defensive reputation, but he's been a sub-replacement level player for two seasons now, according to Fangraph's War, and he's had seasons like that in the past, but he's kind of alternated those bad years with pretty good, pretty promising years. He'll he'll go from like replacement level to three or four wins. And you think, oh, suddenly he's figured it out and then he unfigures it out. So maybe having two years where he really had not figured it out, just sort of put a spark into him. Or maybe it's just seeing all the great young talent come up around him and wanting to be part of that or being motivated by that. Who knows? But yeah, it's pretty exciting to see and it's a small sample. We'll be saying that a lot or maybe we'll just stipulate it so we yeah. don't have to keep saying it. But I think even for him, it's uh, in in this larger sample is probably pretty unusual. In fact, I Googled earlier and I saw a couple posts elsewhere from like, three days into the season that we're like (laughs) Eric Hosmer is elevating, maybe just because like we're all looking for this, but yeah, also because it's just odd, it's unusual to see him even like have days where he's hitting a bunch of fly balls. So seems like something's up.
0: Yeah. Well and it's interesting too, because there's like a mix of other stuff going on. Like his Babip is super low compared to his career average and he's striking out a lot less. And so there's just there's a cool mix of stuff going on about Mm -hmm. Eric Hosmer. Yeah. <laughs> I think he looks like a young Dane Cook. You oh, will yeah, never be able to unsee yeah. it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> what are you picking, Ben?
1: I think I will take Carlos Santana for that's my so first good. pick. Yeah. Carlos yeah. Santana just has one of the, the great small sample slash lines right now. As we speak, he is at one seventy-nine four fifteen. 254 which uh somehow translates to a 106 wrc plus so he has been an above average hitter despite a sub 200 batting average and pretty much no power he has one home run in 94 plate appearances and yet he's still been a a pretty valuable bat and the reason for that is that he has walked nearly 30 percent of the time
0: all the dang time
1: yeah and uh Not new for him to walk a lot He's long been a patient Hitter who takes walks and that's been A big part of his value but Consistently his walk rate has Been in the roughly 13 To 17 percent range And this year it's been About double that and Ben Clemens wrote about this the other Day and based on His findings it doesn't seem like Santana has done anything Dramatically different and Ben seemed to find that maybe pitchers just haven't been throwing in the zone for whatever reason on certain counts, and he's just been smart enough to lay off and take those pitches. But at this point, you know, I don't know if he's been too passive and whether he should have swung at certain pitches that he hasn't swung at, and he might have more power, or whether he is actually taking the optimal approach here. But either way, it's pretty fun because I watched him in a game... The other day, maybe it was the Sunday night baseball game, and the announcers came into the game talking about how he was trying all these walks, and he was way above everyone else on the walk leaderboard, and then he walked like two or three more times in that game, and it was just like he would stand there, and they'd just keep throwing balls, and then he would just trot down to first base, and it just it seemed like a, an automatic thing. like. Boy, why doesn't everyone do this? Why don't you all just stand up there and take pitches until eventually you're on base? It doesn't really work like that, but for Carl Santana this year, it pretty much has.
0: Yeah, I really will be curious to see how long this lasts. I mean, again, we could we could put that caveat on everything
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: that we're drafting in this draft. But yeah, Ben's findings, other Ben's mm-hmm. findings were very interesting because you you normally ascribe this sort of thing to... You know a meaningful shift in approach, and he's just doing what he's always done and is just not being pitched all that optimally. Mm -hmm. and that's amazing
1: yeah and i think ben found that this was the highest walk rate stretch of his career right even though he's had a pretty long career it was still abnormal for him which doesn't mean he's doing anything differently but you can still say that over a, a stretch of this length it's weird to see even someone who walks as often as he does walk this much so Right now, at least coming into Monday, he had 27 walks, and no one else had more than 20, even though there were other hitters who had more games, more plate appearances. No one was in his neighborhood in walks. So I kind of hope that that really strange slash line can persist. I mean, I'm sure that he would rather get some hits and maybe some extra base hits, too, but it also just goes to show you how far OBP goes. Like, You can— Not have a high batting average. You can even not hit for power for a while and still be a valuable hitter if you're getting on base 40% of the time or more. That really just kind of makes up for a lot of other sins.
0: Yeah. Well, I I am going to go in a dramatically different direction Ooh. than that. Just a, a very different sort of strange line. And with my second pick, I'm going to draft Jay Bruce's batting line. Oh, okay. This will feel, I imagine, somewhat familiar to folks who listened to me sort of marvel at Jay Bruce's line last year. I feel like I did that. So right now, Jay Bruce is hitting two. 27, 277, 591.
1: (laughs) Okay, yeah.
0: (laughs) And again, 47 play appearances, but all of that combines to a 125 WRC plus. He has a 212 BABIP and a 364 ISO. 90 (laughs) average exit velocity. I just, strange and imbalanced lines like this are Mm -hmm. delightful and fascinating. And so we salute them and this is a different constitution of that than the one you just cited, but uh Jay Bruce. There was a while last year where I think all Jay Bruce had hit was singles and home runs. <laughs> and that was great. And this isn't quite as dramatic as that, but it is also great. He has uh he has he's just he does does Jay Bruce actually have two triples this year?
1: <laughs> does he? That's almost as weird as the I'm everything worried else. our stats yeah. are broken.
0: I think that they're <laughs> right, but see, this is strange. He's hit two singles, three doubles, two triples, and three home runs. That's how you mm-hmm. get that line it's great yeah. Jay bruce you should never change <laughs> please don't
1: yeah that just goes to show you why batting average has kind of historically been overrated who needs it you can have a really lousy batting average and if you walk all the time or just uh hit a bunch of weird triples you'll yeah be just fine yeah
0: if you have a bunch of extra base hits it's fine mm-hmm. works out just fine yep. so yeah Jay bruce
1: Okay, well, I am going to take with my second pick, probably a pretty obvious one, but Daniel Bard, just uh, the fact that Daniel Bard has a major league stat line at all is fun and notable, so... There's that, and there's also the fact that he's been good. Not only did he make it back after a a seven-year odyssey and injuries and yips and extreme control problems in the minor leagues, he is now back with the Rockies as a reliever, and he has been excellent. His ERA is not fantastic. It's fine, but his peripherals are really strong, and he has walked— one batter in 11 innings, which is just really extraordinary. I mean, extraordinary for anyone, but if you look at Daniel Bard's minor league stat lines over the last several seasons, you will see some extremely unsightly numbers in the walk rate column. In fact, there are some that go to like four digits i mean there's uh, some that are like 243.0 walks per nine which is uh obviously in a, a short stint but usually you don't see that many numbers in the walks per nine column it is uh, generally only two numbers or one number and then a decimal point and then another number and in his case there are three numbers before the decimal point in multiple stat lines, so he had really terrible time throwing strikes, and not only has he made it back, but he seems to have conquered that problem for now. And he got a save, his first save since 2011, which was much celebrated. And he's on this team that has been unexpectedly exciting. The Rockies off to a, a pretty good start, playoff favorites at this point, and they kind of cast adrift there high paid free agent bullpen that didn't deliver, and in its place, one of the people they have throwing quality innings for them right now is Daniel Bard. So certainly one of the feel good stories of the season, and it's really feel good just that he's there at all. But the fact that he has been as good as he's been, it's in a similar genre as Tyler Matzek with the Braves, who also made it back five years after his last major league appearance. And also Has been really fantastic, but Bard was away longer, was even further away from being back, and he has really justified the the Rockies' faith in him, so that's been fun.
0: Yeah, and it's like those kinds of performances on their own, fun. The Rockies' bullpen being kind of good, like their pitching being kind of good, fun. Combine them, lots of fun. Yeah. So, endorse. I endorse Mm it. Okay, well... Mine's a little bit of a cheat because it's very much a not small sample. All right. So you can tell me if you'll allow this. Okay. And this has been true for a minute, but it's just, this wouldn't be an effectively wild (laughs) draft if we didn't do this. Uh I'm drafting Mike Trout's placement (laughs) on the career war leaderboards. Oh, okay. He is on the second page of them for position players uh-huh. and that's delightful he hit another home run while we were recording oh. so good for Mike Trout Mike Trout at this moment in time and this will update uh, it looks like our live stats are a little delayed that's weird has 74.3 wins <sighs> J. Jeffy has already written this year about how he is just Hall of Fame certified. He could he could stop playing today, both in terms of his wins and also his time in the majors. He would be a qualified Hall of Fame candidate, and it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a cheat because you know it's a lot more than a small sample. But those eighty two plate appearances helped Ben because yeah. he's he's accrued almost a whole win uh, this year. We are not yet in normal times for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that he is not leading the WAR leaderboards.
1: Yeah, his DRS is still uh, dragging him down a yeah. little bit. If, if the fine folks at Sports Info Solutions could... Get it together, that guys. that data, just to bump gals. up chat by a few runs, that'd yeah. be nice. But... Yeah, that's dragging him down, but the other numbers have been very trout-like, and Quite. I'll allow it, A, because uh, I'm always in favor of talking about trout on this podcast, but also because the idea of the draft is that we're talking about small sample seasons that we've enjoyed, and, and my trout season is always on the short list of seasons yeah. that I'm enjoying, because it's always really good. Yeah,
0: if we wanted to make this a fairer version of, of a pick, then I could say I have enjoyed his season since he and his wife welcomed their baby yes. boy Yep, because a lot of people want to uh, make a lot of Trout's dad strength. I think it's the same, and I, I mean that as a compliment. He seems very much himself. A lot of people mm-hmm. change dramatically after they have kids. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. You don't know. I don't know Mike Trout, so I'm just saying he's hitting the ball in the same way that he always has. Ben, have we talked about the propensity of teams to congratulate their players about the birth of their children? Have we talked about that on this podcast?
1: I don't think so, no.
0: Will you allow me a quick a quick aside Sure. Here. so it's very nice it's a nice thing to be like hey it's it's cool that you and your spouse welcomed a child into the world and that everyone's healthy that's good we want people to you know have kids if they want them and to be healthy when they are born but I always find it very weird when the, the tweet's like hey congrats cause it's like at the end of the day this is an employee and you're <laughs> like hey congrats on the successful sex you guys so <laughs> yeah. I find that funny yeah, it is a little bit
1: like that. I mean, when uh, when we have a ringer baby, when someone at the ringer Aww. has a baby, there's a, a Slack channel where yeah. those things get posted and their congratulations. It's not a public thing, really, but yeah. then Mike Trout is more of a, a public figure, a more famous figure than we are at the ringer. So maybe that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, you, you congratulate your co-workers, I, I guess it's just that baseball players are very visible and uh, and you know, I'm sure that someone in the Twitter replies to every one of those tweets shows up to say congrats on the sex. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I believe that that is true. I suspect <laughs> that that is true. And it's a nice thing. But the Angels tweeted about their kid being born and, and mocked up a baseball reference page for him. And I'm sure that if Mike Trout's son is like, I want to play baseball, that he might be very good at it. But maybe he wants to be an artist. You don't sure. know, Angels. Let him live his life. He's a little yes. baby. You don't have to put your expectations on him. Anyway, we can get back to the draft. But it's very hot here, and I am a little distracted.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is a show where we've talked about like, the... The the future war expectations of Clayton Kershaw's infant or whatever. So, <laughs> maybe we're not the ones to talk. But I agree oh, that I we should not true. put pressure on uh, on young Beckham Trout. Beckham, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, bat, right? right? It, fa- it's yes, right. Beckham Aaron Trout. Trout. Yeah. Oh boy. You should follow his passions, whatever they turn out to be. And just as we were talking about this, I got a tweet from loyal listener at BraveStats who said, I've heard Ben Lindbergh discuss how Clayton Kershaw has lowered his career ERA with every season he's played. I think that streak was finally snapped, but it was a very long one. Yes. And I thought he might like this one since tonight puts 2020 back on track. Mike Trout has increased his career OPS plus with every season he's played. So I hadn't thought of that, but I guess that makes sense because he started in 2011 with that uh, sub-100 OPS plus in his initial call-up. And then he had some four trout lower OPS pluses that he has improved upon. So. Yeah, he keeps getting better, and that's another thing to enjoy about this year's trout season is that his O-swing percentage is lower than any of his previous seasons. Maybe he's had stretches this long with chase rates that low, but he just gets more and more selective every year. So whether he's getting stronger or not, I don't know, but he just seems to get better and better at picking pitches to swing at. So he is just the best and always gets better. All right. For my third pick, I suppose I will take James Karinchak, who entered the season as someone whose stats I was very much looking forward to, and he has justified that hype. He right now has a 52.4% strikeout rate, and that would challenge the reliever record. Now, obviously, he's not going to get enough innings to really make that meaningful, but the record in a real reliever season is aroldus Chapman's 52.5% in 2014, and that is basically what Karen chack has done so far this season. I would not be surprised if he could be better than that. He's just a lot of fun to watch, too, and he just has that herky-jerky delivery, and he's just all in your face, and I think Terry Francona calls him gronk or baseball gronk because there's definitely <laughs> a, a physical— Resemblance to Rob Gronkowski. And so I was just really eager to see how high his strikeout rate would go, whether he could translate that unbelievable K rate from last year in the minors to the majors. And he pretty much has. And he entered the season with the second highest projected strikeout rate of any pitcher after Josh Hader. And he has really delivered on that thus far. I think he has the highest, or maybe there's some guys with fewer innings who have more, but if we do like, let's see, minimum ten innings pitched, I don't know if he's even had that many he has. So if you set the minimum at ten innings pitched, he is on top at fifty-two point four, and then the next guy is Liam Hendricks at thirty-nine point five. So there's a big gap between Karen Jack and the second place guy with as many innings so he's just a strikeout fiend strikeout prodigy and i really enjoy watching him both on a statistical level and on an aesthetic level
0: yeah yeah i have nothing to
1: add (laughs) all right
0: what am I taking? This has moved a little bit and again our life stats are down, so I apologize. This will be out of date even before we're done recording the podcast. But I'm record I'm drafting rather Nelson Cruz's four twenty babip.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cause
0: that's weird. Yeah. Nelson Cruz. <laughs> Nelson Cruz has a 420 Babip, you guys. That's that's very strange. That exceeds his career average by a considerable margin. Yeah. He has a 420 Babip, but he has well, going into the day, he had six home runs, and now he has seven. So it's not like he's not thumping. He has a no. six twenty slugging. Yeah, <laughs> he's a six twenty slugging and a four twenty BABIP. That's yep. weird.
1: Delightful. It is. Yeah, and he tends to have a fairly high BABIP. Yeah, because he just hits the ball so hard. Yes. It has fluctuated. So it was like 351 in 2019 and 264 with the Mariners in right. 2018. That's a very large jump from abnormally low to abnormally high. But he has been capable of high babbits. But yeah, 420, that's uh, that's extremely unsustainably high. But pretty fun when you couple that with the power that yeah. he always has. He just uh, just gets better with age. I mean, he's 40 now. <laughs> you're not supposed to hit this well when you're 40. No especially in this era so i don't know how he's doing it but it is pretty impressive
0: well, and I think one of the things I've always appreciated about him is that he is not you know the the thump has been there, but he is not limited to that right like he can he can work a good at bat he does not just yeah. hit for power it's not like he's running batting averages in the three hundreds very often or anything like that, but like he'll take a he'll take a walk it's not just it's not just the home runs, and so then there's this year where he has literally a four twenty bat.
1: <laughs> yep
0: and a six twenty slugging,
1: yeah. Who that's... has the highest babbitt right now? Is it is it Charlie Blackman?
0: Uh, let's see. Let us. Yeah, looks like it is. Yeah, that seems right.
1: Charlie Blackman has a 493 Babbit I, <laughs> I guess should I just uh, should I just take Charlie Blackman while yeah. while we're on the subject? Do I it. I mean, maybe that's kind of a a norm core pick to take the guy who's batting 446 or was entering the day, but. Look, it's fun. I mean, we don't even have to have the asterisk caveat. Discussion because I think pretty much everyone stands in roughly the same place there whether you think you need a literal asterisk or not. I think everyone recognizes what this season is and that hitting 400 is not like Ted Williams hitting 400. We all get it. We all yeah. can look at at bat totals, but it's still fun to see a guy hitting 446 after roughly 100 plate appearances. That's a, a lot of fun. And yeah. again, if you pair. Good surprising player with good surprising team That just makes it exponentially more fun And it's definitely something like I'm looking at day to day Hey, what did Charlie Blackman do today? And you're entering the part of the season where it's still unlikely that he ends up at 400 But it's certainly not inconceivable He is 0 for 3 as we speak on the day, so he's down to a lowly 430. So, you know, another over, and we might not get a chance to talk about this anymore. So, enjoy it while it lasts. But it's really fun to see a guy just like hitting 500 as he was. Cause if you do that really over any stretch, even if it's 20 games or fewer than 20 games, especially at the start of the season, so that your average is just that and it's not weighed down by whatever you did before that. It's especially fun just to see those really eye popping numbers. And he's a guy who is a fairly high average hitter. Like he hit right. 314 last year. He hit 331 a couple of years before that. And yes, of course, that's somewhat cores enhanced, but his zips rest of season projection is like 330 entering Monday. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's unlikely, but hey, it's been fun while it's lasted.
0: Yeah and he's he's just so distinctive looking
1: yes that too
0: can I tell a, another story sure and then sure. I'll stop telling stories no please so a couple of years ago Fangraphs did a trip to Denver we did like a staff trip to Denver and a reader meetup and and whatnot and we went to a Rockies game because you know of course we did mm-hmm. and uh, after the Rockies game we were all sitting in the bar at the hotel which was quite near to Coors Field and uh, who should walk in but Charlie Blackman and you know yeah. what he's <laughs> pretty re- he's very recognizable yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's one where you're confident. You're like, you're Charlie Blackman. Yes. Sometimes you look at a baseball player and I'm like, mm, please put a hat on. But no, yes. Charlie Blackman, very obvious. And uh, and Craig Edwards saw him and went, hey, Charlie. And then it became clear that Craig had no plan. And uh, <laughs> this is a nice story about Craig. And Charlie goes, hey, man. And then he kept walking. And it was lovely because, oh. uh, you know, he he wasn't fussy about it, and Craig wasn't fussy about it because Craig's never been fussy about anything. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of one of those moments where you realize that running into famous people in public is generally going to be a moment where you know the first thing you're going to say, but not the second thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so- yeah. That's the problem. There are a lot of celebrities whom I like a lot and I admire and respect but don't really have any desire to meet them because right. I, I have no plan. And what am I going to say? Hey, I like you. I mean, you know, a million people have told them that. A million people have said hello or can I take a picture? Can I have your autograph, et cetera. So I would feel a lot of pressure to come up with the question that this yeah. person has never been asked or the comment they've never heard. And really, I'd just rather not. But You're telling me Charlie Blackman didn't recognize Craig Edwards? That's the big surprise here.
0: The Rockies had lost, so maybe Uh his mind was somewhere else.
1: I'm sure he'd recognize his byline. That's the thing. You've got to get headshots at fan to go with those bylines. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's probably Mm. true.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: Okay. I am going to now vacillate wildly from my Mike Trout (laughs) pick to something that is happening this very day. Hmm. Ben, well, first of all, I will say that Nelson Cruz has hit another home run since we were talking, so he is now up to eight. (laughs) Wow, okay. I am drafting sort of two combinations of players in the current Mariners-Dodgers game. I am first drafting the Seegers, the brother Seeger, who are facing off. Despite the fact that the Dodgers and Mariners have played each other while both have been in the majors prior to now, this is the first time that they are both healthy and on the field at the same time is my understanding. So that's fun. They've both Mm -hmm. hit a home run in this game. Seegers was a three-run bomb. Kyles was a solo shot. The Mariners are winning ever so slightly in the third. So that's the first one, is that I'm just drafting the two of them in a game together and more broader, slightly broader. I am drafting the combined efforts of the Uh Mariner-Kyles, both Seeger and Lewis, because, Ben, the Mariners are rough business to watch. I don't know. I don't know how much, if any, Mariners baseball you have watched this year. Yeah. You know what? That's that's making good choices for your own mental health. There are only so many hours in a day, and I know yeah. you stretch how many there are because you never sleep. But it's been bad. It is not a good baseball team. There are some exciting things about it, but the bullpen in particular, quite poor, the pitching generally, not the best. But the the two Kyles, the two Kyles doing great. Kyle Seeger has a 133 WRC plus. Kyle Lewis, this is more exciting to the future of the Mariners, a 147 WRC plus. So that's great. Kyle Lewis is running an unsustainably high at Babbitt, but that is a problem for another day because that's not the part of his stat line that I'm choosing to draft. Mm -hmm. They have, uh, let's see, combined for seven home runs. And they're just generally playing quite well and seem to like kind of sit next to each other in the dugout every now and again. Like Kyle, the junior is learning from Kyle, the senior. And it's nice. It's a little transfer of, hey, you're one of the good position players on the Mariners. Tell Mm -hmm. me what that's like. Not a lot of people I can talk to about it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's a good one. I just got a message from friend of the show, John Chenier, who has been watching a lot of Mariners baseball because he yeah. works for the Mariners. And he just told me that the Mariners radio guys have been going on for a few minutes about friend of the show, Johnny O'Brien, Ooh. two-time guest of the show, Johnny O'Brien, the great old player, because there is a Seattle University pitcher in the game, Eric Yardley. Of the mm, Brewers uh-huh. is pitching Or at least he's in the majors I don't know if he was pitching at that moment But he is the first major leaguer Since the Twins Johnny and Eddie O'Brien To have come out of Seattle University So oh. it's been quite a while Between debuts of Seattle University Major leaguers But wow. that's nice, always in favor of Johnny O'Brien Getting air time yeah, sure. Okay, this would be My fifth pick, I believe I will take Dylan Bundy for my fifth pick. So, Dylan Bundy has been excellent so far through his first four starts of the season as Tony Wolfe ably documented at Fangraphs this week. And, of course, I'm always a sucker for uh, a prospect who makes good years after he was supposed to make good. So Dylan Bundy was uh, really just like a top, top prospect. I mean, he was, according to Baseball America, the number two prospect in the game going into 2013. He was a top 50 ranked prospect for like four years, and... He came up in 2012 and then just almost immediately got hurt and was gone for years and years and came back in somewhat diminished form and had injuries and came back not throwing as hard and sort of struggled to adjust to diminished stuff. So over the past couple of years, he actually pitched pretty full seasons for the Orioles, which was a victory in itself that he stayed healthy, but he was not. Great, he was uh, pretty middling in those years Maybe average-ish last year And this year he has gone to the Angels And he has looked ace-like in his first four starts And always fun to see someone succeed at this point And, you know, he's still... 27 years old He came up in his age 19 year Which seems like forever ago But he's still pretty young And we'll see if this is Something meaningful, but as Tony wrote, he seems to have changed His repertoire a bit He's backed off that fastball, which is Slower than it once was And was not very effective over the last Couple years, he's just throwing More breaking balls, throwing more sliders He's got a pretty good slider, he's throwing that More, he's kind of pitching back backwards a little bit and getting more first pitch strikes with breaking balls. So that's been fun to see. And I think a lot of people are likening him to Jake Arietta and sort of saying LOL Orioles because we've seen pitchers go from the Orioles to other teams and get good before. I wouldn't really expect that same thing to apply to the modern Orioles because they have been taken over by ex-Astros people. And yeah. if there's anything that... The Astros front office was good at. It was making pitchers better, figuring out how to optimize pitchers. So you would think that they would be pretty skilled at that too. And as mentioned on our Orioles preview episode, the Orioles minor league pitchers had the highest strikeout rate increase of any organizations last year. So I would think that they were capable of telling Dylan Bundy what to do, but who knows? Maybe that message didn't get to him. Maybe he just wasn't ready to embrace it yet. Maybe he figured I'm 26. I can still pitch the way I came up pitching, the way that made me a major leaguer and a top prospect, and just wasn't ready for it yet. So you never know. Going to a new team, new voices, maybe you're more receptive to that message than you would have been. And thus far, it's really paid off.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like we're somewhat encroaching on the territory of Michael Bauman because I feel like these are the kinds of guys he likes, right? Uh-huh. This is like the Lancelin of 2020 Well, like, hey, Bauman
1: thinks that Lancelin was always great. <laughs> I guess that's true.
0: He does think that Yes uh, Lancelin is good again he is really good. Yeah, yeah. Lancelin crushing it Yep Lancelin Sport Lance uh, sporting a look That beard is quite full yeah. It's quite
1: a full beard. Everything's... Pretty full about Lance Lynn's <laughs> look. But yeah. I wasn't going to
0: say that part, but it's not untrue. Yeah. I think Lance Lynn thought the odds that we would play baseball in 2020 were fairly long, let's put it that way. But he's pitching great. Pitching yep. great. Yep. But yeah, it's it's always fun when guys randomly succeed. And gosh, if there's any pitching staff that needs a starter to, yeah. to be surprisingly good, it's like, oh, yes. I think uh, the Angels dialed that up pretty nicely. You could still use a Ross tripling, but who are we to criticize?
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, who you got?
0: Okay, Ben, I'm taking a thing that I hate. Oh, okay. But I find interesting.
1: Uh I
0: hate it because I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) So we're going to talk about it on the podcast. No, I don't care for the discourse around it and I don't really like hearing from this player very often, but I think it is interesting because there's an open question about what is causing it.
1: Uh, I, I, drafting, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm going to draft Trevor Bauer's strikeout rate.
1: Yep, yep.
0: So you have to knock down the innings pitched to get this on the leaderboard because I don't think he's on pace to qualify just yet, but he's strikeout 46.4% of hitters.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: He's probably doctoring the ball. Yep. He's also has a different pitch mix than he has in prior seasons, and so I am very interested in the role that some kind of substance plays in this. Like, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is interesting and important to baseball to have a better handle on this. I thought your and Sam's discussion of this was good. Clearly, there are teams that have been more effective at, at getting high-spin fastballs, especially up in the zone, and Bauer's been quite vocal about how they might be doing that. And now we have several instances in his own career where he might have been conducting an experiment of some kind or trying to prove a point. And I don't really care about any of that part, but I think that there's sort of a, an important practical question about how you do this that I find mm-hmm. interesting. And I think there is also an important sort of like theory of baseball question for us to answer. Like, what do we want pitching to be and look like and mean at the major league level? How much intervention are we comfortable with? Who gets to decide how much intervention they're comfortable with? Like, is this something that should be purely the domain of pitchers? As long as everyone's on the same page, does the opinion of hitters matter here? Because as you guys noted, and as we know, like there are hitters who will say, it's fine because then you're not going to beam me with a fastball Mm
1: because you have a
0: better handle on it. But I just think it's an interesting conversation that I wish literally anyone else was at the center of.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm quite tired
0: of talking about Trevor Bauer. Dan wrote about this for us and I think appropriately decided to just sort of caveat the doctoring the ball part and set it aside because we can't know absent other reporting and he really is pitching differently this year right like he's basically eliminated his changeup which he never threw a lot but is now throwing very little he's throwing his four-seamer a lot more of the time he's throwing the cutter more so like there are changes Curveball's going less often also so like there are changes to the repertoire and also there's this yeah there's this other thing so i'm I hate it, but I am drafting it because I think it is a really interesting and worthwhile conversation that reveals stuff about how baseball works and how we want it to work and what we think is important and what we want to be the sole sort of native talent of the pitcher versus what we're comfortable letting him kind of monkey with beyond that. And like I said, I really wish anyone else were at the center of it, but it is a very dramatic change and one that I think is, is worth noting. Mm-hmm. And I can't decide if Bauer's getting exactly what he wants or will end up kind of ruining the day that he's brought attention to this because the shift is so dramatic. Yeah. And again, it's only 19 and change innings. But the shift is so dramatic that like people are going to notice.
1: Yeah, people have noticed. People right. noticed before the season started. And- right. I wondered whether he would continue to do that after it had been pointed out in a number of places, and he has so yeah it's I also am sort of mesmerized by that, and I have talked about it and written about it, so i, I won't rehash all of that, but I agree with you just I would assume that what he wants is attention <laughs> as yeah. that usually seems to be what he wants and yep. and he's getting it and uh Also, he seems with this specific issue to want to draw attention to it because he wants it to go away, because he doesn't want there to be an uneven playing field when it comes to the sticky stuff, that he wants it just to be made legal for some standard substance to be available to all pitchers. That seems to be his preferred choice just because it seems pretty impossible to eradicate it entirely. And I don't know whether this ongoing demonstration, you would think that, This just brings attention to the issue, raises awareness of it, shows the possible effect in a way that we couldn't quantify before we could quantify spin rates. So... The whole thing is pretty fascinating to me and I have wondered what is going on at MLB and what they're thinking about this because they have made noise about cracking down on this and I can't think of a a more suspicious case than (sighs) Bowers. So if you really want to make an example of anyone then he would seem to be the guy. So I I don't know whether behind the scenes there has been any sort of warning or, or discussion of that but I would be quite curious about it.
0: Yeah, me too. All
1: right. I'm going to take Clayton Kershaw just because he's throwing harder again and it's fun to see him sort of reverse that decline in fastball speed that we've been seeing for a few years now. So he is averaging about ninety two with his fastball. He has gotten it up to about ninety four, and we have not seen him with numbers like that since twenty seventeen. And obviously he was effective with an even slower fastball, not saying he couldn't get it done with slower stuff, but the fact that he has better stuff now after dedicating himself to higher fastball speeds, going to drive line, doing whatever he did there, it seems to have paid off and That's great, not only because maybe he'll be a little bit better now, and he has been good through his first three starts, except for a really seemingly unlucky home run per fly ball rate. Like half of his fly balls have left the park. That's not great, but he has had good other numbers, and the stuff is there. and. That's good because maybe it just gives him a, a longer lease on his career and yeah. on his sort of extended post-peak compiling pretty good numbers period. I was just kind of worried that he would have a, a Felix-type progression. And <sighs> Sorry to <laughs> bring bring that no, up. No,
0: it just makes me sad that that's like the I thing know. we point to. We're like, oh, you know how this guy sucks now? Right. You know?
1: I know, but at least least we don't have to say a Kershaw-type progression, maybe, because... He has turned that around a little bit and, you know, he's not back to Pete Kershaw, but if he gets another year or two, because let's say that he gets, you know, a couple miles per hour back now and then that decline starts again, it it still takes a a year or two to get back down to where he was. So that extends his uh, period of possible effectiveness, which means more people get to see and appreciate Clayton Kershaw and I'm all for that.
0: Yeah, for sure. You want the end to feel dignified, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there is just a nice, easy transition where someone's gonna feel good about when he decides he's ready to retire, we'll do a tour and everyone will kind of have their moment in their ballpark. Like, I think Kershaw's a player who absolutely qualifies for that sort of treatment. And it'll it'll be nice. It's nice to be able to say goodbye to people and players who have meant a lot to you in that way. So,
1: mm-hmm. All right. Well, do you have any last ones you want to mention before we stop? I, I have a couple I uh, considered taking. Maybe I am taking for my final pick here. Mike Yastrzemski, just yeah. because he seems to be a, a swing change guy. And I don't know the specifics of his swing change, but he has spoken about it in vague terms and said that he didn't want to be a slap hitter anymore and he started working on swing changes and making some changes to his mechanical setup and swinging at better pitches and all of that. And, you know, he's 29 years old and he made his major league debut last year. And he was surprisingly good last year. He was one of the nice storylines of that giant season, which was not full of exciting storylines. And, I think there was a lot of expectation that he would probably regress, maybe perhaps be some sort of one-year wonder. And instead, he seems to have applied himself and changed some things. And thus far, it has paid off to the point where, as I look at the leaderboard right now, he is leading the majors in war. So not sure if that could continue, but he's been really impressive. And if he is the latest to make a another Justin Turner-esque career resurgence late in the game that would be pretty exciting i, I haven't heard if he's worked with doug latta or any of the other specialty swing coaches but i would not be surprised if that came out especially because now he's teammates with hunter pence who did that himself so yeah i always like to see someone who was unsung succeed at a, a fairly late point in his career for a breakout
0: that's a really good one some of mine are mean
1: <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> like uh Here's a weird thing. and Encarnacion's average exit velo is the sixth lowest in baseball. That's surprising. <laughs> that's surprising. That's just yeah. kind of weird. Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean anything really necessarily, but like I think he's been dinged up a little bit. So, you know, probably doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything, but that's a little strange because he normally hits the snot out of the ball. Let's see what other stuff was interesting to me. Bryce Harper has a 212 WRC+.
1: Yeah, that's like his MVP year range. It's
0: better than that, yeah. Better. So that's cool. There are a lot of really mean things you could say about the Phillies bullpen, but we will (laughs) refrain from doing that Mm because it seems quite unkind. How do we feel about drafting playoff odds? Is that allowed? Yeah, sure. I'd like to draft the gap in the Orioles playoff odds from opening day to today. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think that it's, you know, it's just a strange thing afforded to us by. The very odd season that we are embarking on and the expanded playoff field. But like their odds were hovering around a little under 2% on July 25th, and they're up to 27%. Wow.
1: Today. Yeah. What were they when the season started? 1% or or lower? Yeah.
0: I think so. This is a little tricky to. (laughs) tell
1: afraid <laughs> right, because the playoff they, format changed on right and day, so i right? want to
0: oh here we go this is a better way to do it. oh look at you know it's tricky except that it's not because david and sean are wizards and they just put it in here <laughs> mm-hmm. handily labeled because they're quite smart so in the old format their odds were 0.2 percent this was mm-hmm. in the preseason their their odds under the new format were 1.4 percent and their odds entering today were 27 percent
1: well yeah that's pretty good
0: (laughs) so I'm drafting the change in the Orioles playoff odds because that's far nicer than talking about the Phillies bullpen
1: (laughs) yeah all right well we didn't draft Fernando Tatis Jr. or Luis Robert but I think that's because we've just talked about them so much everyone knows that we are riveted by them and are studying certain aspects of their season and Luis Robert's quest to swing more than anyone else and still be good, which has not gone so well for him lately, but I'm interested to see if he can adapt and evolve. And then Fernando Tatis Jr.'s uh, really opposite trend where he has become much more selective and has been even better. That's been fun, too. But again, those guys are uh, at the top of everyone's list, I think.
0: Ben, I have two things to tell you, the first of which is that Fernando Tatis Jr. has homered again tonight. Uh, of course. <laughs> so now he has 10. Uh-huh. So that's one thing that I will tell you. And then the other thing is that per Bill Plunkett, the Seeger brothers are the first brothers on different teams to homer in the same game since Felipe Crespo and Cesar Crespo did it on June 7th, 2001.
1: Okay. Moderately fun fact.
0: Moderately fun fact.
1: All right. Well, we can end there.
0: All right, I'm going to go stick my face in the freezer.
1: Well, quick post-game updates here. The Tigers did indeed drop that game to the White Sox, lost their sixth in a row, and fell to 9-11. The only runs the Tigers scored in that game were driven in by brand-new Tiger Isaac Paredes. Charlie Blackman singled in his last at-bat to boost his batting average back up to .437. And Fernando Tatis Jr., who homered once while we were recording this episode, homered again after we finished recording it. He hit his major league-leading 11th on the season, and it was a grand... Slam on a 3-0 count Up by seven runs in the eighth inning Unwritten rules apocalypse Rangers manager Chris Woodward said There's a lot of unwritten rules that are Constantly being challenged in today's game I didn't like it personally You're up by seven in the eighth inning It's typically not a good time to swing 3-0 It's kind of the way we were all raised in the game But like I said The norms are being challenged on a daily basis So just because I don't like it Doesn't mean it's not right Padres manager Jace Tingler called it a learning opportunity Because Tatis evidently had the take sign And swung anyway Tatis said I was locked in on the game Just trying to produce for my team That was on me I didn't look to my third base coach I was just trying to take a good pitch And put my barrel on it Which he did You could see Eric Hosmer Appear to give him a stern talking to In the dugout after he got back If you're wondering, the website Baseball Savant has records going back to 2008, and in that time there have been four Grand Slams hit on 3-0 counts, but none since May of 2014 when Alexi Ramirez hit a 3-0 Grand Slam off of Brandon McCarthy. The other 3-0 Grand Slammers are Evan Gattis and Alex Gordon in 2013 and Hideki Matsui in 2010. In three of those cases, the game was tied or the batting team was behind when the Grand was hit when Gaddis hit his his team was up 3-0. I can't at this second go back even further. We do have pitch-by-pitch data dating back to 1988. Could check to see if there have been any 3-0 grand slams during that time with the batting team up by as much and as late in the game. But it could be a first in that period because a lot of batters don't swing on 3-0. Since 2008, batters have swung at 3-0 pitches with the bases loaded only 6.9% of the time. When they do, they usually don't hit grand slams, so there are not a lot of those and of course because of those unwritten rules it's a lot less likely to happen with a big difference in score so hey it's not great to miss signs regardless of the score or the situation but the only real reason to give Tatis a take sign in that situation is to avoid running up the score on the Rangers and frankly as a fan as a spectator I'm much more interested in seeing Tatis swing away than I am in sparing the Rangers feelings it's sort of silly to tell players that they shouldn't play as hard and try to do their best just because their team is winning it's the big leagues these are big boys they can take it and i'm against anything that would prevent us from seeing tatis hit bombs it just comes down to whether you want to see the most entertaining players do the most entertaining things and express themselves or you want to see less entertainment less athleticism fewer highlights because tradition dictates that certain things aren't supposed to happen at certain times from the fans perspective at least seems like a pretty easy choice so this is just another example of tatis being maybe the the most watchable player in baseball and doing things that we don't typically see. That will do it for today. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Francis Higgins, Andrew Leahy, Enrique Wallace, Luke Y. And David Baltmanis, thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com group effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastwithfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We will likely answer some emails next time. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Surprise!